You are listening to Behind the Ballot Box, Jewish Values and Our Vote, with Rabbi Jesse Olitsky and friends, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about this and other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. And don't forget to vote. Welcome to Behind the Ballot Box, Jewish Values and Our Vote. I'm your host, Rabbi Jesse Olitsky of Congregation Bethel in South Orange, New Jersey. Election day is rapidly approaching. In fact, early voting has already started in many states across the country. We know as we look forward to this November's election that the Jewish vote and the Jewish voter is not monolithic. There are many issues that are deeply concerning to the Jewish community and many issues that are guided by the ethics and values of our tradition. On this episode, we're going to explore the issue of homelessness in America. And I'm excited to welcome a dear friend and colleague, Rabbi Noah Farkas. Rabbi Farkas serves as one of the rabbis at Valley Beth Shalom in Los Angeles, California, the largest synagogue in the San Fernando Valley. Most recently, he led a two-year campaign to address homelessness in Los Angeles County. And he is an appointed commissioner and former chairperson of the Los Angeles Homelessness Services Authority. Welcome, Noah. It's great to have you here. Hey, Jesse. It's so nice to have you. Shana Tova to you. And, uh, and I hope that you and your family are doing well and staying healthy and staying safe. You too. Uh, before we start, Noah, because you're, you're in California, I just want to ask um, how you and your family are doing with all the wildfires that are really consuming the West Coast right now. The sky generally vacillates between a white gray and a glowing orange at times. So it's um, quite surreal. Um, it's been sad to see, you know, the West portion of this country all on fire all at once. Um, generally speaking, my family is fine, thank you. And my community seems to be fine too. Um, one of our challenges is, is that in California, many of the schools have indoor and outdoor facilities, which has helped us in, in COVID because it allows us to space people out. But with the smoke being the way it is, we've had to sort of rejigger things again. And, um, and so that's been quite a bit of challenge, but, but we're making our way through it. And today the air is the best it's been in, since this began, but we're not, we're not totally through it yet. But thank you for asking. Well, we pray for an end to the wildfires. Um, some of the uh, worst wildfires California has seen have all happened within the last decade. Um, and without trying to change the, the subjects to plug a previous episode of this podcast, a conversation I had with Nigel Savage, CEO of Chazon, about climate change and the Jewish community's role in combating climate change. I think the wildfires going on in the West Coast really speak to the, the essential task at hand. Uh, but yeah. Noah, I, I want us to focus, as I said earlier, on your work in fighting homelessness in Los Angeles. I'm hoping you'll begin just by speaking a little bit about how you became involved with that work as a rabbi. Sure. And I'm so glad that uh, you had me here. And it's, I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to speak to you and to your listeners. And I'm really glad you interviewed Nigel. I mean, he's been a leader for so long on climate change. Um, so this all began for me a number of years ago. I used to live on one side of the freeway and the synagogue, Valley Beth Shalom, my synagogue, was on the other side of the freeway. And I'd have to walk under an underpass 
And this was all during the end of the Iraq war. So it was a number of years ago now. And I used to walk to shul every Saturday morning. And I noticed this man sort of living like sort of on the embankment next to the on-ramp. And, and over the course of several weeks, we, we kind of got to know each other a little bit. I used to bring him food from shul, from, uh, from services, our kiddish or food that we would serve after services. And um, I found out that he was a veteran and I found out that uh, he has severe PTSD and um, there was a surge of these guys and gals coming back from Iraq. And, and he, he, like so many other uh, folks who were just deeply traumatized by war, uh, didn't ha really have the strong coping skills and ended up losing relationships, burning through them, turning to drugs, becoming addicted, and bottomed out and was on the, was on the side of the, the freeway. And, and, you know, like so many of us, I didn't see him at first. It was, it's almost like America historically has treated folks who are experiencing homelessness as the moral tax for our own prosperity and that we as we're walking down the street, we just see, oh, there's the bus stop, there's the there's the trash can, there's the mailbox, there's the homeless person, there's a tree, there's this door to the the store. Like it's just part of the urban landscape. And we don't realize of all of those objects, one of them was created in the image of God and is has a soul and a life and is someone's brother or sister or child or father or mother, and they have a whole story. And when I began to see that, you can't at least me, I couldn't unsee that. And, um, you know, in our religion, Jesse, we don't really talk about vocation or a calling. We talk about commandedness, obligation. But those two things came into my mind in a very crystallized kind of way. I felt called to respond to this person, this person's suffering. And I know that in the Torah, it says, um, at least 36 times that we should protect those who are meek, the stranger, the widow, the orphan. So I also felt obligated. So I felt the sense of vocation and the sense of mitzvah, chovah, upon me. And um, this was in like in August. And so immediately, because I have a background in community organizing and social justice work, I immediately began organizing my community, launched a high holiday sermon, built a committee, and it's all led to some of the work we can talk about today, but it essentially has, um, this committee became a coalition that became a massive coalition across all of Los Angeles that has moved billions, $10 billion in funding to help homelessness, homelessness in California. And I'm very proud of that work. Thank you for sharing that powerful story, Noah. Uh, I'm wondering if you can talk about that powerful work that um, was launched from that experience and how you really galvanized your community to respond um, to being coalition with different houses of worships across the county and what were some of the successes and challenges as chairperson of the LA Homelessness Services Authority, which just to note, I just want to clarify, uh, the Homelessness Services Authority of Los Angeles overseas, if I'm correct, regional strategy between the public and private partnerships within the city. Uh, so much of what we do is really the balance between tzedek and tzedakah, right? It's so much of, of, of the balance between social action and social justice. 
from the, the uh, assistance of government agencies and the charitable work of nonprofits and of religious organizations. Yeah, um, thanks for that. So let's just, let me just clarify just a couple of quick things. Um, the LA Homelessness Services Authority or LASA is a government agency that is um, serviced as a, what's called the Joint Powers Authority between the city and county of Los Angeles. And it collects all of the revenue that goes to the government and from private foundations, um, packages it and gives it out as grants to recipients. Those are your shelters, um, other organizations. Uh, non, it's not a political organization. It is a, it is a governing organization. And I wanna be very clear that even if LASA takes certain positions, it's because they believe they're furthering the cause of helping those experiencing homelessness, but it doesn't campaign actively, you know, uh, it's, it doesn't run for election or any of that. It is, it is the service to humanity. That's what LASA does. And there's 10 of us on the commission. And when I first started, the budget was around $300 million and now it's close to $600 million. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm currently the chair of the finance committee, so I oversee a $500 million budget in addition to my own congregation. Um, and, and, and so I just want to put that out there. And then secondly, like the work we've done, and, and this really gets to the heart of the matter, the work we've done, the most important work we've done besides the money, which is important, trying to shift the conversation about homelessness being about criminal, criminalizing homelessness, that's about being, um, Home, you know, people who are homeless are just addicts and criminals and really looking at it from a public health perspective. That is to say that uh, a small percentage of people who are experiencing homelessness do commit crimes, mostly petty crimes. Um, a small percentage of them are uh, violent. Many of them experience mental health, specifically mental health issues around schizophrenia, et cetera. But 100% of them, Jesse, are traumatized. 100% of them. And most of them are what I call double or triple trauma. It's traumatic enough to be beaten by your boyfriend or your husband and then to run away. And then it's traumatic enough to be turned away by friends or family who choose not to house you for whatever reason. And then you, if you spend one night on the street, especially as a woman, one night, you're traumatized again. And every day that you're out on the street, that anyone's out on the street, they feel alone, they feel forgotten, they feel terrified. So every day they're traumatized. We have the statistics, I don't wanna go into all the numbers, but we have the statistics. The longer someone is unsheltered, the farther down the abyss they fall, the harder it is to pull them back. They become what you and I have experienced and I think what other people see as um, disheveled, crazy looking folks. They become that way because they're on the street. They weren't that way before they got on the street. The people who are the worst off are the people who've fallen the farthest. And in my personal religious conviction, our job is to pick up those pieces, to throw, to pick up the human trash that were thrown out and to bring them to a place of beauty and sanctity. And so my number one thing I've been always trying to do 
to teach everyone, and we can disagree about which policies work and how to approach it, but is to see that every one of these people were created in the image of God. They have a soul just like you and me. They have relationships that were broken. There's something inside of them that's broken, whether it's uh, this triple trauma or their addiction, or they are suffering from uh, dissociative disorders like schizophrenia or multiple personality dissociative order or other types of trauma. And many of them have tried to commit suicide at one point or another. And so um, I'd rather look at this from a public health perspective than what we traditionally growing up saw it as a uh, criminal perspective, a policing issue, because, uh, because that hasn't worked, that, that, that process hasn't worked. And what we need to do is reach out to these folks and figure out how to get them uh, housed, safe, clean, healthy, and then um, healed. That's the work that has to be done. I wanna ask you to dig deeper about our religious conviction, um, if that's okay. Our tradition speaks highly about about welcoming and guests into our home, right? Abraham famously does so uh, when he's um, sitting outside his tents in the terebinths of Mamre, and he sees these guests and he's quick to welcome them into his home and realizes that they are divine realizes that they are angels. And I think that speaks deeply about what you said, that we walk by homeless people, especially in urban areas, as if they're no different than the fire hydrant or the mailbox or the trash can and forget that they themselves are divine. But this obligation demands of us to welcome people into our homes, but that doesn't solve homelessness and that's not what you're suggesting. So how do we create like a city Los Ange uh, like Los Angeles or Los Angeles County, how do we create a system that has this past year, 66,000 um, who identified as homeless to get them back on their feet? Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's just talk about that number for a minute. I'm not in New Jersey. So you can tell me how many seats does the stadium where the giants play? How many seats does that hold? You know, uh, close to 50, 50. So imagine you went to a, uh, playoff game, championship game to watch the Giants. And it's more than sold out. There's people in the parking lot. There's people huddled around the field, you know, everywhere. And you went to go cheer them on and every single one of them was homeless. I was wrong, actually. 80,000. But, but 80. yes, but, but, let's but say, let's say you're at, you're, okay, let's say you're at a sold out game. That's how many people are homeless in LA County right now. And let's talk about why that is for a minute, and then I'll talk about our obligation. So we know that there are five reasons why people become homeless, okay? The number one reason why people become homeless is because there isn't a place to live. It's almost tautological in your way of thinking, but the truth is, is that the, there are too many people with too few beds. Um, here in LA, the vacancy rate for apartments hovers between two and 4% which means that the day you sit, tell your landlord you're moving on, there's four or five applications for that apartment the next day, and he's ready for you to go. Um, we know that uh, LA was zoned many years ago for way more people um, than it's currently zoned for now. I'm just only speaking about Los Angeles because it's my area of expertise. Um, and part of that is 
the large number of single family homes, et cetera, in LA versus apartments. We know, so like it's basic supply and demand. When you only have uh, 10 rooms available and you have 15 people who want those rooms, the cost of those rooms go up. We know that is a fact. So that means that rent, rental and property rates in Los Angeles are way too high because there isn't enough housing. So that's the first one. The second one, which we have to talk about is mental health. The large, large number, I'm talking 30 to 40% of those experiencing homelessness experience a mental health disorder of some level, whether it's PTSD, schizophrenia, uh, dissociative disorders, right? And 100% of them are traumatized, but a large percent have episodes, like real episodes. So we as a society a number of years ago when you and I were kids decided that liberty is more important than prosperity in this country. And we decided that you are free to be as rich as you possibly can, and you are free to suffer. Liberty is too important. So we closed mental health facilities. And there were problems with them, et cetera, but we didn't reform them, we closed them. And now you have three options if you are mentally disabled. You either have family who can support you by having you live with them or put you in a privatized sort of group home. You can go to jail, which the largest mental health facility in the United States is LA County Men's Jail. So you can be in jail or you can be on the street. So that's what we're seeing. That's the second one is mental health. Third is, is trauma. And I don't mean the trauma of being homeless. I mean the trauma of leading to homelessness. Um, the majority of teenagers who are homeless in Los Angeles um, express either non-binary or LGBTQ identities. And many of them were rejected by their parents. Some 60% of them have attempted suicide at one point or another. Um, what I mean by trauma in this case, Jesse, is I mean that they were rejected by the people that they trusted the most or they were abused by loved ones or that, or what, what have you. Maybe it's a veteran who experienced physical trauma in, in war. Trauma is a major driver of homelessness. Um, the fourth one is uh, what we call privilege and what you and I know to be privilege. I don't necessarily racialize privilege. I, I think privilege is a matter of a network. Um, those privilege is the distance between each of us and abject suffering. So if you have friends or family, or you have historical wealth, or you have a network, a community, like a synagogue that will take care of you, they will do everything they can to keep you from being homeless. That's a privilege. But if you don't have any of those things, if you come from a community that doesn't have as much privilege for all sorts of reasons, you will fall through the cracks faster. Okay, so those, those are the biggest drivers of homelessness. The results of homelessness are crime, they are illness, sickness, they are um, deep, more deep trauma, there are uh, higher hospitalization rates in the county. I mean, the, the adverse effect on a society because of homelessness is far greater than, than the investments we can make to prevent homelessness. And we have statistics on that too. It's cheaper to give someone an apartment than it is to allow them in it, to come in and out of jail and in and out of the ER. Um, and that's that, so, with all of that shift in thinking, then we can get business leaders on board, which we have done. We can get churches and synagogues, et cetera, on board, which we have done. 
we can get government officials, including those who are a little bit more conservative um, on board, which we have done because we realize that this is an investment in preventative work that will actually pay off in the long run. Um, there's so much more to do, so much more to go. Um, we have the second worst homeless problem in the, in the country next to New York City. Um, and uh, we are, this, our city, Los Angeles, is just beginning to come to terms with it. And, and um, LASA, the organization that I sort of oversee uh, on the finance chair, houses 150 people a day. Pull 150 people off the streets every day. But unfortunately, the, the moving average right now is that for, um, for every 150 we pull off, 160 come on. So Because of the, the rapidly declining economy or? It's not, I'm all talking pre-COVID now. This was just the, the system. So the, this leads to the systemic change that we, this can't just be an, uh, a city or a county or even a state issue. This is a federal problem because homelessness is up all over the country. Um, again, it's that liberty issue. We have people who are billionaires and trillionaires in this country, and we have more people who are homeless than ever before. Um, and I mean that as a percentage, not just as straight numbers. And and that's a that's an income inequality issue. And I don't want to get political, but but it, that's just a fact. And how we address that, there might be different types of policy vehicles to do that. But that that's a fact. Um, and then our religious obligation, Jesse. We come from a very particular nation of people. For thousands of years, we didn't have a home. We know what it's like to have been kicked out of every country in this world, except for the one that you and I currently live in. And maybe, maybe it's just me, but I, I, I feel like trauma begets trauma unless you make the psychological, spiritual decision to stop and break that chain of, of pain from one person to the next. And I feel like that is what our religion has taught us over and over again, is that just because you were strangers and slaves in Egypt doesn't mean that you should allow yourself to treat the people who work for you, the people who are poor, the people who live at the margin of society, the same way you were treated in Egypt. It's just the opposite, right? Um, we walk in to a home for the first time, cross that threshold, kiss the mezuzah, you're not supposed to let the door slam behind you when there's a poor person on the other side. You leave the door open for them. And that's, so that's where it comes from for me. Some of what you spoke of, I've noticed that Finland has been doing, that Finland um, has really tackled homelessness in their country um, simply by providing housing uh, for people, right? A, a housing first mentality, not temporary shelters, but uh, this housing first approach that they've been doing for a decade has uh, decreased their homelessness population by more than 50%. Um, yes, they have social services that can help with addiction, that can help with mental health, but those are not prerequisites for permanent housing being provided, not shelters, but apartments being provided with people because when somebody has a bed to sleep on at night, that they can call their own and a roof over their head that they could call their own and a fridge that they know they can supply food in so that they're not worried about how they're going to store their next meal and thus are spending money inefficiently on food, uh, then they're able to have a sense of, of what a home could be. Because if you don't have a home, if you don't have a safe space, then your home can never be sacred space. 
Totally right. So we adopted a housing first model. Um, we call it supportive housing or permanent supportive housing. Um, although not all supportive housing is permanent. Um, let's just talk about that. Let's just touch on that for a minute. Okay. Um, from a financial perspective, building someone an apartment um, or building apartments that can be used as supportive housing on a month to month basis is actually cheaper, as I said before, than criminalizing homelessness. Um, some of those costs of buildings here in LA have gotten out of control and we're working on bringing those down. Also, you don't have to build anything new. You can buy existing apartments. There was a hospital here that was shutting down because it wasn't up to hospital code anymore. It was cheaper to buy that hospital, renovate it, and you can build apartments out of it. So that's happening. Old motels, those old drive-up motels you remember from the old movies, those can be easily converted into apartments within weeks and cost a tenth of what building new construction costs and still be safe and environmentally sound and earthquake retroactive fitting and all of that. Um, so the, when we're talking about permanent structures, there's plenty of options for permanent structures. Um, the second thing you should know is, and I said this before, we used to house people who are really sick, who didn't have friends or family to take care of them. We shut that entire system down. And it's not great to build a sanitarium with a thousand people who are all have schizophrenic. That feels scary, right? With the word asylum, right? When we think about it, that's what it, so what if we built apartment buildings that were scattered site all over the county that would have 30 or 40 people in a place and they had a community. And they had, you know, just like we'd have a, a, a home for your grandmother or your, for your Bubby or for your Zadie or, or whoever, if you can't have them in your house with you and they need care, you're going you're gonna to hopefully have them in a community that feels mutually supported. You know, when we talk about people who need permanent supportive housing, we're talking about people who cannot heal. We're talking people who like need to take their medicine every day. They need to take very powerful drugs every day to be sane. These aren't people who, who like, they're not going to get much better than they are. They can get much better where they are when they're on the street, but they're not going to ever be like super productive members of society. So I believe very firmly that what people can do for themselves, they should do for themselves. That's what we call, you and I know, that's called the iron rule. But there's the platinum rule. It's more important. Whatever someone cannot do for themselves, because they're a victim, because they're sick, because they're in pain, we should do for them. And that's, what, that's the obligation of the society. That's the kind of society I want to build. So supportive housing is that model. It's different than shelters and things like that. You know, I, I, last night we had, um, leading up to Rosh Hashanah, we had a drive-in shofar blowing, many of them, over and over and over again from, from uh, our day school, our wonderful Valley Beshalom, Harold M. Showweiss Day School. And at the very end of the last one, I'm there blowing shofar behind a screen, you know, all the right things, whatever. When the last uh, car pulled out, there was a car sitting in our parking lot. Someone had driven in because they had saw a gathering of Jews and she had parked, she's a little old beat up car. And I, someone who's been doing this a while now knows exactly what this conversation was gonna be like. I walk over to her with, with a friend and sure enough, all of her belongings are stuffed into this car. You couldn't even see out the windows except for the front window. And she gets out and she's asking me last night for a place to stay, for a place to live. And I asked her, does she have a place to stay? And of course, like the way she, phrased it to me is like, oh, I have a place to stay. I'm just afraid to be there. And I knew immediately she was beginning to have a, uh, an episode, um, nonviolent, not at all, 
but she's having an episode and my like trauma informed care kicked in and we brought her food from the food bank. I called my contacts at LASA, the organization, and I found her a bed last night. And then she turns to me and starts speaking in Hebrew, Jesse. And it turns out that she went to Jewish camp. She went to um, Hebrew school and she started speaking like Hebrew school English to me, uh, Hebrew school uh, Hebrew to me. And, and I guess if for our listeners, I think that the next thing you should, they should think about is that these people are not other races. They're not necessarily other cultures. These are our folks. This, this girl, I'm going to call her, uh, I'll call her Jenny because I don't, I never use their real names. So Jennifer grew up in the Valley, was a nurse. He says, she told me, went to Hebrew school, had a bat mitzvah, had a family and something in her broke. She still thinks she's a nurse. She showed me her papers, but they haven't been valid in, in years. So she's had, she had a significant schizophrenic break. Who's going to take care of her? Who else but we should take care of her? So I spent my evening last night after Mariv finding her a bed to sleep in, and we found her one. And uh, she left. I, I might not ever see her again, but I think that's the work we need to do. I appreciate you sharing that story and really humanizing homelessness and saying that this isn't about the other, that this deeply affects all of us, including the Jewish community. I want to spend a couple minutes focusing on this moment uh, where COVID has brought a really an unprecedented financial crisis in this country, the likes of which we have not seen since the Great Depression. Um, how do we respond to homelessness, especially now? There have been conversations about cuts in unemployment. There have been um, conversations about rent eviction and whether landlords can evict tenants under these sort of COVID times. Um, especially now, are there more things that we, the Jewish community, can be doing? Sure, absolutely. COVID has devastated the homelessness community. Um, you often, when a homeless person dies, it doesn't make news. It just doesn't because we're interested in other things. But, you know, in Jersey, I'm sure this is true. And it's certainly true here. If there was a snowstorm in Jersey, a, a blizzard, someone who's experiencing homelessness probably died. The same is here with a heat wave or with uh, when we had El Nino, which is this massive sort of pressure system that creates the opposites, like monsoons here, it happens every few years. Um, a lot of homeless live in the riverbeds and they, we know of homeless folks who are washed out to the ocean because of it. Um, but it doesn't make the news. I find out about it because of my connections, but it doesn't make the news. And so when someone dies of COVID, in this country, many of them are just numbers. Like many of them are just, what's the moving number? 195,000, 198,000. But a lot of those people have pre-existing conditions and a lot of those conditions are poverty. And um, homelessness, so, so when homelessness, when COVID hit, we knew that we were gonna have, I mean, we knew we were gonna have hundreds of people in LA who were experiencing homelessness that could have died from this disease. And our commission moved very rapidly 
to basically rent out any available hotel in the city that was willing to, and we converted it to homeless shelter. It's called Project Room Key, and uh, it's now been replicated across the, the country, which is really great. Um, and so uh, we've been able to rapidly house thousands and thousands of people in these hotels. And that process is now coming to an end. Unfortunately, the funding for Project Room Key is starting to run out. And so we're having to try to convert them to, to, to actually moving into other housing options. Um, COVID has also, as you said, created an unprecedented financial crisis. It's not just a crash of a stock market that happened, it, it hit everybody. And um, what we know, it, what we know is what I think is very obvious when you think about it. When the number of people who are trying to hang on by paycheck to paycheck suddenly lose their job, they don't have rent to pay anymore and they get evicted. And uh, the number of evictions that are coming, if they haven't already started across the country, is just absolutely massive. Abs and, and I'm expecting the homelessness population to, to grow by 20 or 30% overnight because they have nowhere to go. And, um, and that's a real, it's a, it's a real, it's a Shonda. It's a Shonda for each and every one of us in this country that we can house people. So looking at, at November's election, which is really a few weeks away, we are uh, less than 50 days from the time that we're recording this episode to election day. Um, knowing that this is a nonpartisan podcast, you and I have our, our own thoughts, um, but we don't officially endorse a candidate, um, but we really judge each candidate on the local, state, and federal level based on these issues. Um, what is at stake potentially in November's election when it comes to uh, providing housing for that large percentage of the American population who are currently homeless? Yeah, I think the question for, you, for me, if you're going to use this lens to talk about who should be president or who should run the country, the question I'm going to ask is, is um, without endorsing a candidate or talking about a political party, but who can create prosperity for all versus prosperity for some? And if you take that as your lens and you think about um, you know, various signifiers about who has done well in the last several years and who has not done well, um, you can make a decision if, if that's what you care about. And this is an issue that I obviously care about. Um, if, that's what, you know, if, that's, if that's one of the things that will dictate your vote is to think about who will create prosperity for everyone. Um, and and that's, that's one of the things I think we should all be thinking about. And of course, it goes without saying, Jesse, but it needs to be said, it needs to be reminded. If you wanna change society into the image of society that you'd like to see, the very first thing you have to do is to vote. You have to show up, whether it's virtually or with a mail-in ballot, or if you have to go vote in person, do it safely and go vote in person. But if you don't vote, um, you're basically saying, I don't care enough to make a difference. And if Absolutely. Well, there are plenty of people in our country who uh, have many barriers uh, and many hurdles to get to the polling place and get to the opportunity to vote. Uh, 
because a voter suppression is a key tactic that plenty still use um, to try to sway an election one way or the other. We have a very disappointed percentage of Americans who actually historically vote. Uh, you look at other countries in the world, and that's uh, not the case. But too many of us spend our time pontificating about all that is problematic without really understanding the power of the vote, a power that people were willing to die for, um, and a power that so many are still fighting to truly have that opportunity. So I think that's a really important point, Noah, that we have to vote. Uh, as Mishnah Vo teaches us, we cannot separate ourselves from community. Um, and as you've really detailed for us in this episode, in this conversation today, that the issue of homelessness is a Jewish issue. Uh, every issue at stake in this election is really guided by the ethics and morals of our tradition. And we need those ethics and morals to also guide us um, when we are in our polling booths as well. Well, thank you for ha so much for having me, Jesse. Um, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. Always happy to help. If any of your listeners want to get a hold of me, please, uh, you can find me either at my own synagogue at Valley Beth Shalom or contact Jesse and, and uh, he'll put us in touch. Absolutely. And uh, you can also follow Rabbi Noah Farkas on Twitter at Rabbi Noah at R-A-B-B-I-N-O-A-H. Of course, you can always follow me as well on Twitter at J-M-O-L-I. T-Z-K-Y. And as Noah reminded us, don't forget to vote. Stay safe, take care of each other, be well, and wishing everybody a happy, healthy, and safe 5781.